Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views expressed in the podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm so excited to speak with our guest today. We're going to dive into a range of topics from value-based leadership to some of the core solutions and promising advancements in healthcare delivery in our country. Our guest today is Dr. Rishi Sikka. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Sika speak at a Startup Founders Fellowship that Ruby Galdarab and her company, MD Disrupt, hosted a few weeks ago. It was, I have to say, it was an amazing collection of just absolutely brilliant and accomplished entrepreneurs. There were over 40 people in the room, and Rishi was one of the faculty that spoke today. And I have to tell you, I was just blown away by him, uh, by his intelligence, by just the diverse experiences he's had, how he just has this unique perspective on healthcare. And I just felt really, really compelled. I, I went up to him after his discussion and, and asked if he would be on the podcast and so glad that he agreed to do this. Before I formally introduce Dr. Sika, I do want to take a moment to officially announce the upcoming publication of my second book. And I do think it has a lot of relevance to this discussion today. The book is called Beyond the Walls. It's about the trends, the humanistic movements, the market disruptors that are really transforming American healthcare. It's sort of an odyssey into the courageous entrepreneurs, the trailblazing leaders and the organizations that are going beyond the walls of our legacy healthcare system to create a more personalized, a more effective and humane system of care. What I like about the book is that unlike many other books in the genre, it's not about what's wrong in American healthcare. It's actually about what's right and what we should be doing more of. And so I love the, the positive perspective in this book. The official publication date is September 5th, 2023. So it's coming up pretty quickly. It's currently on amazon.com for pre-order. I also just want to add that all proceeds from the book are being donated to Feeding America. It's a, a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating hunger nationwide. And this is just part of my own personal mission. And I'm glad that I'm able to contribute to that in, in my small way. So let's jump into this again. So, so excited. Rishi, I'm going to contain myself. You are an amazing leader. Just a, a small little snippet on your background. You're currently a venture partner called Lifeforce Capital. You're a professor of health services policy and practice at Brown University School of Public Health. Some of your past executive roles have included uh, president of system enterprises at Sutter Health as well as the Senior Vice President of Clinical Operations and the President of the Advocate Insurance Segregated Portfolio Company. Rishi, I understand you earned your bachelor's in economics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, one of the most prestigious business schools in the country. Your medical degree comes from another small unknown named the Mayo Clinic Medical School. And you have, I didn't know this, you co-authored a book, Leading Healthcare Transformation, a primer for clinical leaders, which I actually did get a chance to look at. You also, again, Rishi, amazing. You've written for the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review. And finally, the last thing I'll say is you are recognized, and I'm not surprised, as a top 50 clinical executive by Modern Healthcare in 2021. Rishi, you're an amazing person and your background doesn't even begin to reflect that, but uh, welcome to the show. Zev, thank you so much for that generous introduction and, and just thrilled to be here. And, and thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, 
what's really interesting, and it doesn't surprise me after hearing you speak, you have a very diverse professional background. You shared a little bit about that with me in terms of some of the uh, divergent roles you played, uh, not the typical sort of physician, executive physician leader. Could you share a little bit about something sort of outside of the typical journey that most of us have? And how has your background, I'm really, really interested in this, how has your, I would say, diverse background shaped your perspectives and your approach uh, in healthcare delivery and as a healthcare leader? Yeah, no, thank you, Zev, and, and great question. You know, I, I started my career just in a little bit of a different way in that I started out in business school and didn't really see myself going into management consulting or investment banking like a lot of my peers and was, I think, looking for something that was more mission-driven, connecting to purpose, although those weren't the kind of words being used back then. And the classes that I liked the most were in healthcare management, healthcare economics, healthcare policy. And I thought the way that I could make a contribution in healthcare was by becoming a physician. And, you know, had this change in career track, ended up, you know, going to medical school, but always working to kind of combine the clinical and the business aspects of, of healthcare. And, and even during my time in medical school, I had a couple really unique experiences. I spent two years there moonlighting as the uh, reporter for the NBC affiliate in Rochester, Minnesota, not having any broadcasting experience, learning on the job, and having a tremendous uh, opportunity to be not just to report, but to be on television and to, to communicate. It's kind of interesting how that experience kind of paid itself forward about 20 you know, 20 years later, when we moved to Zoom and doing all of our communication to audiences on video and, and pieces like that. When I was in medical school, we had a unique curriculum. I took like five months off and worked at Prudential Healthcare and their managed care research group in Atlanta and learned, again, back then it wasn't called this, but how to use big data and how to assess quality and outcomes using administrative data, which I think paid off dividends again probably 10, 15 years later when I was at Advocate Healthcare and, and helping to use data to improve outcomes. You know, I, I think there's there's sort of a philosophical answer to your question, and then there's sort of a more practical. The, the philosophical is, you know, Steve Jobs used to say this, you know, the, the narrative only makes sense in retrospect <laughs> and how the threads come together and, and why certain things happen and, and how they occur doesn't really make a lot of sense as it's unfolding. But, but, the, but the threads can make sense as you go down the path. I think the more practical piece is that the more diverse experiences you can collect as an individual, as a professional, and a leader, I think that spurs creativity. I think it spurs opportunity. And then for me, something that I do a lot is I learn and I think through analogy. And I think it enables that to look for like different and novel solutions that you might not see ordinarily in your industry. So, so I hope that kind of gives you some sense of how I kind of think about that or pull it together. I've been really super fortunate and, and honestly blessed, particularly with having mentors and coaches and others who have kind of opened up these kind of opportunities for me. Yeah, that's so, you know, just so fantastic. I think that point about, again, we, a lot of folks, we use the word diversity a lot, and obviously it has a very, very specific meaning right now in healthcare, in terms of disparities of care and, and, and equity, um, and inside healthcare in terms of, you know, bringing in folks from diverse backgrounds. 
but I think what you're talking about is a, a diversity of perspective, a diversity of experience, a diversity of thinking and approaches, which again, and the, and the reason I wanted to tie this back actually to, to the intro about the book, the, the book is literally about that, Rishi. It's, it's about getting beyond the walls of our thinking. And I think quite honestly, I don't want to attach a moniker to you because you're so unique, but I think you're a beyond the walls leader. And, you know, as, as I think about that, you, you mentioned, and I'm going to quote you here in our correspondence, you wrote a lot, and I love this, about value-based leadership. You used the words purpose quite a few times in relationship. I'm going to quote you here, and I want you to respond to this. You said, or you wrote, I believe in healthcare. We are in the relationship business. But at the end of the day, rather, you know, it's about healing relationships. I have personal experience as a physician, patient, family member, and I think there is a different way to think about this. And I'm really, really curious, what, what is the different way you have to think about it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I'm, I'm an emergency medicine physician by background, practiced for almost 20 years. And, you know, I, I think that the quality, the standards of care, that's table stakes. And that is so important. But when I think about, you know, some of the experiences I've had as a patient or as a family member of a patient, sorry, as a somebody who's a member of my family who's undergoing care, the thing that gets me still that I end up valuing, again, the quality and the, the standards or table stakes is just that dyadic relationship, that back and forth, the trust, being present, being mindful, and fully aware in that moment. I, I think about you know one of my daughter's and she had, when she was younger, a lot of pulmonary issues, a lot of things going on medically. And we had this wonderful pulmonologist that she would see. And, you know, so I don't know if our meetings with her were five minutes long or 10 minutes long, but they always felt like they were an hour. There was no EMR between us. Mm. She was fully present, looking us in the eye. It was about my daughter, it was about us as parents and the core of that relationship. I think back to that as almost like the epitome of what it is we're, we're striving for. You know, two, two more things that I'll, I'll say about this. You know, when I was early on in my career in emergency medicine as an attending, I was, you know, always hustling, you know, trying to get the department to move and getting patients in and out or upstairs and doing what we needed to do. One of the things I started doing was when I'd come to see the patient in the room, I'd sit down, I'd talk to them. I mean, how many times can I work up chest pain? And I know exactly algorithmically how to think about it and what needs to be done. But I found my career as an emergency medicine physician kind of got rejuvenated by just sitting down and, and just taking a few extra minutes to be present, mindful in that interaction. So how do I think we could you know, think about this differently? I'll give you an example, and, and we may get to this later, but you know, one of the, one of the big issues right now in, in healthcare delivery is around affordability. It's the cost of healthcare. If you're going to improve affordability, there's a lot of levers, but one of them is we have to probably fundamentally improve the cost structure. When you think about cost structure, you know, 60% of your cost is due to labor. So people start thinking about, you know, how can we improve labor productivity? I think there's a lot of exciting things that are happening right now with generative AI and other AI tools that might unlock and improve labor productivity. I'd love for us to maybe just take a step back though and say, well, suppose we have a solution or a tool that improves labor productivity. That is, you can see more patients and there's a demand and access issue that's very real right now, but you could see, let's say 
you know, two more patients in the course of your day. Maybe if we were to take a step back and say, you know what, instead of doing that, we're going to let you see one more patient per day. And that time that you would have seen that extra patient, we're going to give that back to you. So you can actually spend more time with your patients. Mm -hmm. So you can be present, be in the moment and generate that kind of healing relationships. Mm -hmm. That's how you sort of connect. I think values-based thinking and what is our purpose and our mission to solving some of the problems in healthcare and thinking about things in a different way. I know that was a lot of threads there and I kind of hope that all makes sense. Now, it makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, just to reiterate what you pointed out, I mean, on a very personal level, the issue of trust and, you know, the providers being fully present, fully aware, mindful. I think every one of us who's listening to this, you know, no matter what role we play in healthcare as a patient or family member of patient, I mean, we get that in a big way. I'm sure I, when you told your story, I was thinking about my children, my parents, sitting with them, you know, across the exam room, you know, from the doctor or nurse and very much feeling the same way you were feeling. Not all those experiences were as wonderful as the one you described. And so I'm really glad to hear that. I think you're making a really, really important point, which is that when we all think about digital and the tech enablement that's happening, it very much is focused on the transactional part of care, right? It's on capacity and, yes. uh, and access, which is absolutely, as you point out, so super important. But I think, you know, when I heard this from one other great thinker besides yourself, which is Dr. Eric Topol, he wrote a book about this, where he basically says that the way we're going to rehumanize medicine is actually through the digital enablement. And so he really agrees. I mean, he basically just echoed what you said. And, you know, it, it's that's the real magic of digital and automated care and AI and all that technology. It's that it's going to actually take so much off the, all that transactional stuff, the writing of the note chart, you know, the billing, the coding, you know, so much of that stuff that is transactional. And it allowed the doctor to do exactly what you did, which is to sit there and be mindful and be present and be a guide and navigator and coach and teacher. And, you know, we use the word, and I haven't thought about this in a long time, but when you were speaking, you reminded me of this. We call doctors attending physicians. Yeah. And yeah, that's right. I never thought about that. I know where right? you're going with it. Yeah, no, I, mean, I want to know where you're going with it. I mean, attending, right? That means yes. you are attending. Yes. to the people in front of you. It's exactly the things you talked about, the trust, being fully present, being fully aware, being mindful. And I, yes. you know, I think we talk about, you know, and this is not a critique of physicians in any way. In fact, this is a right. supporting statement of physicians. Every physician I know, I can't really think of one in my entire career that doesn't want to be more aware, present, mindful. I mean, that's why we went into it. There's a reason why 60% of doctors are demoralized. Yes. And it's the reason, it's not any one thing. The reason is they're not able to do what they wanted to do, which is exactly what we talked about, which is to be an attending physician. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, Deb, I agree with just about everything you said there. Let me split that into like mm -hmm. two parts then for kind of further dialogue and back and forth. You know, a statement that I like to use, and it actually comes from speaking of analogy and learning from other industries. It comes from SC Johnson and the leadership team of SC Johnson. SC Johnson, totally different industry, the maker of like Gladlock and Windex and things like that. And they talk about championing the trust agenda. Mm. And I think right now we need to champion the trust agenda with patients and with 
providers and clinicians. And for all the reasons you just talked about, especially in the past, you know, just a few minutes about, you know, the degree of burnout, moral injury, the crisis that we're experiencing, we need to champion the trust agenda and take the series of actions that you were mentioning just a little while ago about how digital enablement could be the the unlock on that. You know, that the, the second part I'll I'll sort of say the flip side. So that was sort of from the leader provider, you know, leader organization perspective. Big fan of Daniel Pink's book Drive. And he talks about, you know, what are the motivators for people? Mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Now, I think those are very important to physicians. And if, if we can get this sort of digital unlock and this digital enablement, I would love to see an organization say, you know what, we've given you this time. We're going to free up time. You have some discretion in how you want to use some of that time. If we free up an hour in the day, instead of, as you were saying, you know, that we're going to you know, improve productivity a hundred percent with that hour, maybe, maybe 50% of that hour goes to improving access. And maybe we give 50% mastery, autonomy, and purpose for the physician to decide how it is they'd like to use that time to generate value for their patients, for the community, for the organization. So just, just plus wanting everything you said and, and maybe taking it a step further. No, I love it. How do you, I mean, again, you have such a strong background in clinical operations and clinical leadership. You've been there, you've rolled up your sleeve for years in addition to, you know, your academic background and your clinical background. So you know what it's like at that level of really deploying and operationalizing these sorts of things. What in terms of your, and I love, by the way, I love your championing the trust agenda, where, by the way, if people want to learn more about that, you mentioned SC Johnson. Can you say a little bit more about that before we move into, Yeah. Yeah, I've had some some unique experiences. Probably about, I guess it was two or three years ago, I had the chance to spend some time with industry leaders outside of healthcare, including SC Johnson, Ford Motor Company, Bertelsmann, and got to know the COO of SC Johnson and how they think about leadership and their organization. And, and he mentioned that their number one imperative at the time was championing the trust agenda. Hmm. I thought that was just such a wonderful way to articulate what they saw but I thought it was actually pretty incredibly germane to healthcare yeah. delivery. Yeah, that's great. I, and you know, I'll have to say, I, I think that this is such a huge opportunity for hospital yeah. systems in particular. Yeah. You, you know, you've got a long legacy of being in the community. You've got the patients, you've got the doctors. If you could really, and I love that champion, the trust agenda it's untouchable, right? I mean, it. I think it'll supersede a lot of the other transactional stuff. In the short run, it might, like you were pointing out, there's a trade-off. In the long run, it's such a big win in terms of both both creating value for the patients and healthcare consumers, but also for the providers of care, the internal consumers. I think you said it perfect, Zev. I, I mean, we need to transcend the transactional relationship now. Mm. Oh, I, I think you said it perfectly. I'm going to quote you on that. Oh my God. That's definitely going to be a quote on a LinkedIn graphic. Oh, wow. No, we. Well, you know, I, I think we have to transcend the transactional relationships that are occurring right now in healthcare. And that's not just with patients, it's with providers, it's with physicians and clinicians. Yeah, I think championing the trust agenda, a return also to connecting to mission and purpose are things that can actually get us there. You know, leadership matters. That's what your whole podcast is about. That's what your book is about, right? You know, mm -hmm. leadership matters and leadership is perhaps more important and critical now than ever. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. Now let's dive into some of the reality of taking that. I think we we both we both have lived through this, and you know, so we know the realities of you know uh, the day to day realities of deploying this sort of stuff. What do you think when you take this ideology of championing the trust agenda and and like you say, transcending the transactional, which doesn't mean you know minimizing or, or the transactional. It means expanding it. You you know, widening the aperture, as people say. So if you were literally, you know, back in the saddle as an operational leader at some large healthcare system and you were trying to, you know, again, given your experience, you may have already lived through some of this, but trying to actually put this into effect with, you know, real clinicians in a real organization, what would be some of the hurdles to making it a reality and how would you overcome some of those hurdles? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's real because you know, many organizations right now, those relationships are very fraught for a variety of reasons. And, you know, it's why there's, I think, a lot of tailwind right now with physicians, you know, frankly, wanting to become unionized or joining unions and feeling kind of powerless and trying to gain, I guess, at some very basic tactical level leverage, but but probably at a, at a higher level, you know, the sense of mastery, autonomy, and purpose. You know, when, when relationships are that fraught, I think you're going to have to first go back to some real basics on leadership. And that is showing, you know, mutual respect, empathic listening and servant leadership. I think it's very analogous to the kinds of things that, you know, Satya Nadella did when he started his tenure at CEO at Microsoft, where trust was very broken with employees. The culture was very broken. I think a lot of this has been really well-documented. You know, his approach was to start not by deploying a grand strategy or tactics, but by, you know, bringing his leadership team on, you know, formalizing, you know, empathic listening mm-hmm. and, and going down that path. And I, I think that's going to be one of the very basic first steps that needs to occur is who leads and how we lead are going to need to be very different and, and displaying that listening, that empathy, that understanding that mutual respect. And, and we could talk even what servant leadership means a little bit more in a bit, but mm-hmm. that's going to be really important. Well, on a tactical level, you know, Zeb, I think we're looking now at models that really bring physicians in as true, true partners mm-hmm. and engaged. That means shared governance, formalized governance and with, you know, clear outlines of decision-making responsibility, decision-making rights, decision-making process. It would include supporting physicians if they're going to do this type of leadership work um, with, with resources and operating support. And it may include also, you know, financial incentives and including in times, you know, joint ventureship and, you know, shared ownership of parts of a, of a delivery system. I look a lot to my model, you know, back when I was at advocate to their, you know, probably stellar clinically integrated network advocate physician partners, which had a lot of these elements of governance, shared decision-making, formalizing decision-making rights and operating model and shared incentives. It's not to say that those are the panacea or the thing that will solve it all, but I think that's a path way through that takes physicians from being, you know, feeling transactional, feeling like, quote, I'm putting in air quotes, employees and partners 
co-owners invested mastery, autonomy, and purpose. I think those are things, but it's going to take a different style of leadership. And it's also going to take some time to champion that trust agenda with them too. Yeah, it is a different, you know, I think in our correspondence, you talked about disruption on the side of care, and I'm not sure if, if this is exactly, you know, the same thing you were referencing by that term, but it does seem like there's a disruption of this fundamental employee model that we've been heading down, right? Most of the physicians in the country now are employed by large systems, large groups. And you probably see more of that sense of agency in the provider groups, you know, the 50, 100, 150, even 200 size groups. It's, there's more of that sense of governorship. But once you get into these large mega systems, it does devolve into, you know, an employee model. It's just the nature of the beast. How would you, and, and again, maybe you could say a bit more about the advocate physician partners, which I have a little bit of familiarity with, but is there, you know, that model, is there, are there other models out there that we could sort of say, yeah, this is sort of what I'm talking about directionally that we might want to move towards or emulate? Yeah. Yeah. I think the advocate physician partners model was a, a successful model in a very large organization with both an employed medical group and independent physicians that, you know, allowed for the organization and physicians to jointly contract largely around value-based care, but not exclusively around value-based care to, to deliver better outcomes for patients. And you know, they had a, a lot of legacy of culture building, you know, probably for a decade, you know, before I got there, that really cemented the aspects of collaboration, partnership, and joint governance that made it extremely successful and replicable, I think, for other organizations. So I think that's definitely one model is clinically integrated networks that are sort of cast in that same sort of vein as advocate physician partners. I think other examples could include, you know, taking inside a large health system that has a medical group, potentially certain specialties or certain groups of physicians and offering them the opportunity for co-ownership of certain parts of the delivery system. So as an example, you know, potentially taking a group of proceduralists or specialists and affording them the opportunity to joint venture, you know, ambulatory surgery centers or ambulatory infusion centers. Now I, I know that as a possibility to think about, I'm not advocating a hundred percent because there are, you know, issues and things to be considered, including, you know, preserving, I think the integrity of patient interest at the top of things, certainly anti-kickback and stark issues are also at stake, but it starts to enter a different model where the individual is not just an employee, but a partner and owner. It addresses some of the issues that I think physicians are looking at when joining unions, which I think is one of the biggest sort of threats that large medical groups and health systems face right now, which is about leverage. And I think hopefully I've run joint ventures in my past with physicians, invested a lot in improving those relationships in joint ventures. It it can return that sense of mastery, autonomy, and purpose and reset those transactional relationships. Um, So those are a couple examples, I think, of, of how you'd go about doing it. Again, I think we always want to sort of, you know, you're always trying to balance polarities here that if you do that, that you're not introducing another externality that could complicate things. And I think the one that you want to always be aware of is that, you know, financial incentives trump the best interests of the patient. And that requires strong culture, strong leadership as well. Yeah. You sort of building on this a little bit, you talked about building strategic ecosystems of care. How does this fit in? 
Yeah. You know, this is where, and you and I had a little bit back and forth. I, I just really love looking at the auto industry hmm. and, you know, that the auto industry is going through tremendous disruption right now. They are literally changing their business model right now from manufacturing an internal combustion engine to being an industry around software and batteries, completely different tech stack, completely different business model and prowess. And there's this great book, it's Ram Churin's last book that came out on digital strategy. And in it, he talks about how the auto industry has been approaching this disruption. And there's two ways that they've been approaching it. Most are approaching it in that they're not you know, hiring a bunch of people to build software. They're not hiring a bunch of people and building plants to assemble batteries. They are partnering with others. They are investing in small startups. They're investing in established companies who will do the battery building and the software building. And they're sort of assembling these strategic ecosystems to manage through disruption. So I think that that's a model that wow. can be used in healthcare too. I think a lot of times healthcare delivery systems are like, okay, there's a new service that we need to do or is required, value-based care, home-based care. Let's go out and build an MA plan ourselves. Let's go out and build a health plan ourselves. Let's go out and build you know, all the care management capabilities and disease management capabilities you need for value-based care. Let's go out and build out a home infusion company. Let's go out and build out a home care company. You get the point. <laughs> it's very much like, let's go and just build it and do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. It takes long. It takes time. You don't have the expertise. Mm -hmm. It's probably not de-risking things appropriately. But instead, if you could think about how the auto industry by and large is thinking about it and say, you know, we're going to establish an ecosystem, mm -hmm. an ecosystem where the data can be interchanged, where the patient can try to experience and navigate it in fluid experience. And we're going to take ownership stakes, partnership stakes, collaborative agreement stakes, and all these other organizations to build out the full experience while we manage this business model disruption. That's a very different way because... You know, that that means that for a healthcare system, partnership and collaboration have to be core competencies in executive leadership. Mm -hmm. and, and that may be a new core competency that mm -hmm. hasn't always been tested in large delivery systems. Just one last point. I want to contrast, you know, I was using the auto industry as the analogy. Volkswagen took a very different path than all their other peers on this. Volkswagen decided we're going to hire about 5,000 software engineers. We're going to build out the battery stuff all of ourselves. And, you know, Volkswagen's CEO was ousted over this strategy. Mm -hmm. Volkswagen is extremely behind on deploying electric vehicles in the market and is probably in some respects a laggard at least a year or two ago in that, in that regard. So I think, again, learning by analogy in other industries I think that bears caution about how health systems think about this new world of digital disruption and feeling like they got to build it, own it, and do it all themselves. I could not agree more with you. I completely agree with everything you talked about. It's and even with, and that's a great example from Volkswagen trying to do what essentially healthcare systems have been doing and are still uh, attempting to do, which is house the ecosystem. I'm going to apologize for the time, but I have to say, I actually have two chapters in the book I wrote that 
literally expand what you just said. And awesome. I'm going to send you an early copy of the book because I really want to get your feedback on it because we're so aligned on this. You know, I liken it to, you know, medieval times. And I actually borrowed this from Jim McKelvey, who wrote a book called The Innovation Stack. He's the guy that created Square, that thing that you plug into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, your cell phone and and you could swipe credit cards. So he's a now a serial entrepreneur, you know, doing incredibly well. And he wrote this book and and he basically he talks about this. He uses the metaphor of medieval fiefdoms, you know, where they had a wall. And again, this was in the dark ages, you know, they built walls. So there was a good reason in the dark ages to build walls around your town. But the thing is, you know, to continue to try to do that in the current modern era is actually, it's a vulnerability. It's a liability. Yes. It's it's a market disadvantage and it's holding us back as an industry. And I think to your point, if you look at other industries, whether it's the credit card industry or banking or finance, or you look at travel, I mean, these industries have realized that in content, you know, that if they're going to thrive together, they've got to take down those medieval walls. And that fundamentally is why the book is called Beyond the Walls. And it's this notion, and in healthcare, I think we have a great example of that. We see the payers, they're not going to try to build yes. everything themselves. They're creating, yes. they're doing exactly what you said. They're yes. they're vertically integrating. So they're going to partner or, yes. or collaborate with or purchase yes. the capabilities and stack them together. And so I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, just riff off of that, if you will. Yeah, I completely agree that that... that you know, as you indicated that these things that are occurring in other industries, this sort of thinking about building moats, which is sort of, I think, been the, the traditional way of thinking about competitive advantage needs to give way to this other approach. And, and the book, just, just so I, in case anybody's interested is, is rethink competitive advantage, new rules for the digital age by Ram Charan, you know, agrees with that thesis that you just articulated that's in your book completely. It's a mindset difference though, too, to engage in this way. And I would challenge that. I think it's also going to require executive leaders who are good in collaboration and partnership with outside organizations. That's very tough, man. Very tough just in terms of, you know, uh, some of the, I think, traditional mentality that can pervade in organizations that a negotiation is about, you know, I have to win and you have to lose. Yeah really thinking about win-win and trust. Again, that word trust again, right? Championing yeah. the trust agenda. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think we've gotten very good inside the industry in terms of horizontal mergers. And, yes. you know, I, there's a, a place for that and makes sense and there's argument for it. I know that there's a lot of argument against it too and there's a lot of literature. But, you know, I think, and you nailed it, I think I'm going to quote you again. I, I wish I had actually interviewed you before I wrote my book. You said, Partnership, and I think you nailed this, partnership and collaborations are the new core leadership competencies. I just love that phrase. I'm going to quote you on that again. It's, I think you're right. I think it's a, and to your point, you know, I, I will say having spent quite a bit of time in this domain, it's a whole new way of thinking. And yeah. you really do have to, I found that over the past few years, I've had to rewire my brain a bit to really understand how we all can you know, thinking of ourselves as a collective, how we all can win, because if you win, I win, I win, you win, how to actually structure the That's opportunities right. that way, right? It's very, very different. That's right. That's right. I love that phrase you just used. How do you structure opportunities that way so they're win-win? That's exactly right. It's a different yeah. way of thinking and a different way of doing business.
it's a skill. I've oh God, we could. I've got so much more to ask you, but I want to dive in a little bit to you. Are you now are a part of a or working with a VC firm? And I'm just very curious in terms of, you know, what that, you know, what you're doing, and also if you could maybe one or two sort of new or promising trends. Like, where do you see happening in healthcare that really gets you excited and hopeful and enthusiastic about the future? Yeah, no, thanks. So, you know, a lot of my role is is really working with the portfolio company CEOs and their teams to think through uh, strategy, market-facing approach, leadership and team development and execution and results. And it's it's an area that I I thoroughly enjoy, you know, working with leaders and working with teams and transforming them into high-performing teams that get transformational outcomes and and results. You know, a couple areas that I'm I'm, I'm pretty excited, or I think I've got some very interesting things. Certainly, there's a, a lot of venture and other money that is going into population health MSOs, primary care MSOs to enable physicians to be able to take on more value-based care contracts and to succeed. I think the other movement in value-based care that I'm seeing is sort of these carve-outs, these specialty-specific or disease-specific carve-outs that are going to manage a slice of the risk of a group of patients. So uh, an organization that might manage the renal risk exclusively on a capitated or shared savings basis, or an organization that might manage the the orthopedics risk, or that might manage the uh, oncology spend on an exclusive basis. I think those are a couple areas that are got a lot of momentum and energy behind them, as well as anything that's sort of you know, taking care and putting it in an ambulatory or home-based environment has a lot of excitement. I think a unexplored country mm-hmm. that I think is going to be really big and hot and topical in the next five to 10 years is around cell and gene therapy. And, and specifically the high cost, sometimes in the millions of dollars for the treatment, sometimes these treatments are curative. And I think there's going to be a variety of organizations that are going to sprout up around the data and analytics required to manage these types of high spend therapies. How is risk? I mean, risk in sort of a very traditional insurance perspective and reimbursement handled for these expensive therapies. And what does the clinical care model look like for these therapies as well? I think this is going to be a very exciting and bold area. I know there's a number of individuals and venture firms that are interested in this area and the organizations are very nascent and early, but if you look at the pipeline of these, you know, million dollar therapies, potentially curative that are coming down the pipeline, I think it's going to be a very, very hot area. Oh my God. We're going to have to get together another time because I want to dive into all those new, exciting, promising things you just talked about. I'd love to hear more and hear examples of that. Probably my final question for you. If you had one message to deliver to healthcare system leaders, whether that be hospital systems or on the payer side, even in our country, what would that message be to them? You know, Zev, I I think, you know, there's been this saying in our, in our business for a while, no margin, no mission, right? I'm sure you've heard that. Of course. (laughs) Over the years. The interesting thing is that that's actually not the original saying. The saying is actually attributed to Sister Jenna Rose Gervais, who was one of the co-founders of the Mayo Clinic. And, and the full saying of hers was, no margin, no mission, no mission, no need for money. 
And if, if you go back to what the full statement was, it's actually saying something very different than what no margin, no mission says. What it's saying is, is mission comes first and mission matters the most. I think this is a very pivotal moment in healthcare organizations to put mission first, to return to mission, connect to purpose, champion the trust agenda with our patients, with our physicians, with our providers, with our employees. And a fundamental belief of mine that if we return to mission, the economic and the financial results will follow. I think that's probably the core of, of some of the pieces that need to be put into place now. I think that's so spot on as a core message and a core need right now in healthcare. And and I think, you know, you know, just to add to what you're saying, I think I think you would agree. I mean, look, you're you're a great example of it. I think there are so many brilliant leaders in our healthcare system. Yeah. They're there, they're smart, they're passionate, they're experienced, they want to do the right things, but I think we need to do it. I think we need to take your message and figure out how to operationalize it, how to deploy it so that it's not just rhetoric at the top, it actually, it's not the exception. It's not, you know, what you start your meeting with, but then get to the real business, but it becomes the business. And that's a huge, that's a heroic task. I mean, right. It's an epic task and it's a task where, you know, I heard someone say this recently that, that leadership really is about planting trees whose shade you'll never get the chance to sit under. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I hear that in you and I hear that in what you're saying is that we need that call to leadership. A hundred percent, Zev. It's a time for heroic leadership and so privileged to join in that journey with you and with your listeners on this, at this critical time right now. Oh my God, Rishi. I'm going to call you up afterwards and bother you because I want to talk to you some more and hopefully get you back on the podcast. It, just such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to Dr. Rishi Sika. And Rishi, as you may know, every episode I conclude by taking a moment to really thank all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and and those of you who are directly and indirectly supporting the care of patients there's no question we truly appreciate you for for what you're doing and recognize how critically critically important your work is as as dr sika pointed out you know being present fully present aware mindful building that trust how important that is to the individuals you care for, their families, the communities, and our society as a whole. My friends, this is Zeb Newworth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.